Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Hello, everyone. You might remember a few weeks ago, we spoke to the economist, historian, author and podcaster Adam Tooze about the six things on everyone's mind. There was supposed to be two parts to that conversation, but we couldn't record the second part because, unfortunately, Adam had to fly off to Switzerland. However, he did agree to join us at a later date and record the second half, which is on the shifting of the world order and the economy of the future. This podcast is that recording. So we cover a lot of different subjects from tech tariffs in Taiwan to info wars, debt crises and political divisions to who owns commodities, who finances who, digital currencies, and who's winning that race to lead the world order. It's a fascinating conversation. Please do enjoy. History is littered with attempts by countries to shift the world order. Some have been successful, others not so. Most recently, the biggest was probably the US taking over from Britain after an attempted coup by Germany. Now we've had Russia attack Ukraine while trying to tie itself more closely to China. But while most people's eyes are on the battlefield, uh, Adam, can I ask, where do you think the main wars are being fought for control of the world order? Well, I think the main axis of the power struggle right now is clearly um, Sino-American, right? That's really, I think, what this is all about. Certainly from the point of view of Washington, the urgency with which they are exploiting this opportunity to attrit Russian military power has to be understood, I think, not from a Eurocentric point of view, but from the under the aspect that um, the main struggle from their point of view is clearly with China in coming decades. And their nightmare was that a strong Russia would be an ally of China in that. And um, Putin has given them the chance to, and it's, you know, it's a unique historical opportunity to attrit Russian military power by way of Ukraine's heroic resistance, hence the vigorous American backing for that resistance. Um, but I don't think that should, you know, confuse us about where the main axis here of the global power struggle is. But obviously, the war between the US and China at the moment is not being fought on a physical battlefield. So whereabouts is this war being fought? Um, it is being fought, above all, I think, in the tech area, uh, where I, I think I mean, the war language is obviously, in some sense, alarmist. Um, some people would even say inflammatory. Um, but in certain respects, I think it's important to, you know, to um, be clear about the intensity of the battle that's going on. And, and from to my mind, it begins really certainly in 2020 with the all-out American assault on Huawei and its technological base. And that really gives China notice, puts China on notice, that the United States will not tolerate the development of serious global Chinese tech players. Um, it'll do everything within its power to prevent their development. Huawei was not just you know a big cell phone provider, it was... It was the partner of choice for the emerging market world for low-cost 5G solutions. It was one of only two or three companies that could really do them at scale, the other two being European. And it was the number four, the number four global private R&D investor, no, you know, in all classes, across all areas. So, and this company was singled out for the United States, not just for one round of sanctions, but for a, you know, a series of tactical strikes. Huawei would, you know, Americans would move, Huawei would make a counter move, America would make a counter move, much as they did with Nord Stream. Um, and so, you know, it's not wrong, I think, here to talk about a kind of economic warfare, because it's not about trying to reach a modus vivendi. It's not about negotiating how much soybeans or whatever the Chinese are going to import in exchange for their exports to the US. It is a zero-sum 
this far and no further declaration on America's part with regard to Czechs, sorry, to, with regard to China's um, tech horizon. And also, we saw the tariff war begin predominantly with Donald Trump. It's gone a little bit quiet now. Obviously, lots of other stuff has been going on in the background, including the pandemic, uh, Russia's uh, war with Ukraine. Where are we on the tariff wars these days? Well, the tariffs are very much still in place. They've not gone anywhere. And astonishingly, America still periodically you know, invokes the so-called phase one deal, which Trump started in 2020 by celebrating, which was it's not really even a tariff deal. It was a very low-tech kind of quantitative bargain. You know, China will increase its its imports of America's uh, aircraft or China will increase its American its imports of American um, energy by X quantity. So it's a very primitive type of trade deal. Um, and the Americans still go back to this and, and, you know, invoke this agreement. But it's it's, to my mind, entirely secondary to the much broader, much more consequential struggle over, over technology, which is about microchips, it's about communications, 5G and so on, and of course it's about AI, it's about nanotechnology, it's about the ultra-sophisticated, highly complex technologies that will dominate the future. And part of America's anxiety is that it isn't, in fact, a world leader in many of these spaces. It's not the world leader in microchip production anymore. It is not the world leader in 5G communication. Um, and so America there has, you know, a, a, has to fight a battle on many fronts simultaneously, all of which puts the tariff business really entirely in the tr in the shade. But those tariffs are still there. American consumers are still paying the upcharges that that uh, that uh, the Trump administration imposed. I mean, Trump made America into a country with a average tariff level um, comparable to that of India. So really very anomalous by the standards of a rich, advanced economy. So you mentioned the wars going on on the technological side. Who do you think is winning that war at the moment? Well, it's very difficult to tell because ultimately the tech battle um, is fought out in laboratories and in industrial um, production facilities of such sophistication that are shielded very seriously from public scrutiny. Um, and it, it's a long game. The, the development lags on these technologies are extremely uh, long. They run into the period of five to 10 years. And the number of players that are actually able to compete is very small. I mean, even a giant like America's Intel has not succeeded in matching the absolutely um, you know, unbeatable um, market leaders and technology leaders from Taiwan. So there are a very small number of players. Uh, much of the action is, is below the radar. So it's difficult, I think, to sort of score this at this stage. It is, after all, also a struggle that's really been ongoing for at most two or three years. What we do know is that everyone's spending money. So the Europeans and the Americans are spending huge amounts of money in, in increasing their uh, microchip production, or at least promising to, and trying to find partners. And there can be no question that China is doing the same. So too early to call that. It's 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 a struggle that would be played out over the period of five to ten years at the very least. Um, but also too early to call it for 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 the Western side. Um, it was it was us who decided to declare this uh, a zone of contest and. We're yet really, I think, to see the full force and the full measure of China's uh, capacity to respond. The questions are serious, though. It may very well be that this is a hurdle, which it'll be very difficult for the Chinese to cross, but one should not underestimate their determination, and nor should we, I think, underestimate their capacity. There is a terrible 
sort of um, sloppy idea in, in the West that somehow it's only our societies, free societies, as we like to call them, that have the capacity for radical innovation. That wasn't true during the Cold War. Uh, the Soviet Union produced a perhaps less efficient, but nevertheless effective innovation system. And we will have to see what China is able to do in this space. Globalization has really come under attack in recent years as we were talking earlier, most notably with the US trade wars, in particular with China and parts of the rest of the world, but and provided by COVID and the war with Ukraine. So how likely is it we will see a reversion to countries internalizing processes and products as much as they possibly can? So I think I think deglobalization or you know, a retreat to self-sufficiency, these are unhelpful caricatures to describe the world that we're in. Um, the world that we're in is one in which it is increasingly attractive for major players, corporate and national governments, to consider the geopolitical dimension of their supply chains uh, and the resilience of those supply chains. And so what we are going to see, and we already see it, is a much greater sensitivity to the politics of foreign direct investment and the uh, the maintenance and the up building up of uh, relationships with key suppliers. And what we're also going to see is efforts to build resilience, above all, by building inventories. And uh, globally, we've seen a very considerable increase in inventories across the world. I mean, The Economist did a survey recently which suggests that inventories may have been built to the tune of several trillion dollars, 1% uh, of global GDP, they estimate, which is a very large number. Um, now, that, that could be a cyclical thing. It could be a reaction to COVID. It may simply be a reaction to the sort of supply chain shocks we've seen. But those are the sorts of adjustments that I would expect to see, a wholesale deglobalization and retreat from notably the integration of China in the world economy, I think is very difficult to conceive um, for, for business generally. We might see the development, I think, of within very large companies of parallel supply chains, you know, with, with politics that, as it were, fit in two different categories, one which is, as it were, more compatible with strong relations with China and one which is more Western-centered, um, I think, um, from talking to some journalists recently, they 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 said that they'd met corporate leaders who were pursuing that kind of strategy. So then you see, as it were, a split within the organization. I mean, think HSBC in the way in which it attempts to straddle um, mainland China business and, and a Western-facing business, um, both from a single base in, in Hong Kong, which is becoming increasingly difficult for them. So I think those are the sorts of adjustments that we're going to see rather than an all-out end to globalization. Above all, I think it's crucial for us in the West to not take an excessively Western-centric view because the center of growth in global trade in future is not in the North Atlantic or centered on either Europe or the United States, which are already very well integrated into global trade, but um, in the emerging markets uh, of Asia. And um, the politics and geopolitics of those relationships are quite different from the new Cold War phrasing, if you like, of the relationships that both Europe and the United States have chosen to adopt in recent years. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to The Investor Download. Okay, just to sw switch tact a little bit here. So information has always been an important tool in wars we're seeing it now obviously with russia and ukraine and it seems more important now than ever in the new age of social media so what are countries doing to win that information war and who might be winning that war well certainly in the in the current conflict in ukraine it's clear that ukraine is winning the war at least insofar as the question is one of rallying global opinion to ukraine's cause I and mean, they've been extraordinarily effective 
in um, putting their point across. Um, they have a photogenic uh, political leadership. Um, and furthermore, they have the cooperation of the global, the Western media system anyway, which, which has happily cooperated with them in presenting Ukraine's side of the story almost um, entirely. Um, very little effort any longer at balance, if you like, uh, which, which may be perfectly legitimate and given the one-sided stakes in this war. Russia is winning its own information war, it seems largely with regard to its own population, however, and, and that shouldn't be discounted. So whereas Ukraine is fighting a kind of open, um, from an underdog position, is fighting an open and highly successful global information strategy, Russia's focus has been on on ensuring that domestic public opinion stays solid behind the war. And so far, you have to say that they've they've managed to do that too. Um, in fact, you know, the more hawkish Western position on the war, insisting that we should uh, force this to a Ukrainian win, is to a considerable extent conditioned on the belief that that will work because Putin, without disaster, because Putin can manipulate the Russian information space to such a degree that he doesn't have to fear political humiliation, right? Um, because if he did fear political humiliation, one would have to worry about more extreme reactions from Russia. So in a sense, we assume that there are different information wars at play at any given moment in the world, and you can win them in different ways. China's regime also, of course, pursues an information war, and to the outside, it looks spectacularly ineffective, right? Chinese propaganda just doesn't really resonate. In the West, there was a huge move in Western public opinion against China in in, in recent years. But within China itself, um, up to the, the debacle of the no-COVID lockdowns in Shanghai with regard to Chinese opinion on broader issues, um, there's very little doubt, I think, that Beijing, uh, the regime there enjoys an overwhelming preponderance of at least publicly expressed opinion, notably in the Chinese internet, which is itself a highly regulated, highly manicured, highly controlled space. Um, but the regime itself doesn't even need to fight that struggle. There were plenty of active, nationalist, patriotic, ultra-loyal netizens in China who will pursue you know, um, heterodox opinion um, non-conforming opinion mercilessly on Weibo and, and other platforms like that. So it's a very, I think the, 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 the game is complex, it's important, it certainly matters in terms of steering global public opinion, um, but there are many games being played simultaneously under many different rules. That's another thing I think we have to adjust to, is that there is no longer one story of informational globalization, there are many. Okay, and we've also had a massive ramp up in global debt, certainly over the last couple of years, given what's happened with COVID and before that with the uh, global financial crisis. How much of a danger does the debt burden pose to the future evolution of the economies that are so indebted? Well, it depends what sort of debt we're talking about. So, um, you know, there are two different types of problem. There's a, a public debt problem in um, Europe, um, not really because the debts are so high, but because the governance structure of the Eurozone is so particular, um, particular in the sense that it essentially splits the issuing of sovereign debt from the issuing of currency, which for advanced economies is very unusual. It's as though Italy was essentially borrowing in a foreign currency and borrowing to the tune of 150% of GDP. That's not a stable situation. And one has to worry about that. There is an issue of corporate debt. Um, one of the effects of the low interest rate environment of the last decade or so is that it's been extremely attractive for corporations to um, maximize their debt issuance. And so at the margins within the 
corporate world, one has, I think, to worry about the robustness of um, some of the uh, junk uh, non-investment grade debt issuance. The, the worry there is that um, it, it could spiral into a systemic crisis, um, but one would need to be quite clear about the, the chain there. So with the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis, we know how that becomes a major crisis because the Eurozone doesn't have the governance structures really to support a big player like Italy, and then you would have to string together the political apparatus to do that. Meanwhile, the Italian banks are heavily entangled with Italian sovereign debt, so you have a doom loop mechanism. So that's one, as it were, ticking bomb. The other so the question really with regard to corporate debt is, is it a ticking bomb or could it just simply be bad for some corporations? And I think at this point, the financial stability assessment is that, and I don't think the Fed and the ECB and the other central banks will be hiking interest rates in the Fed's case as aggressively as they are if they didn't, if they weren't broadly convinced that the stability of the financial system is sufficient to absorb the shock, because otherwise you'd worry. But I think probably they must... Uh, Form, have formed the view that as painful as this is going to be for some corporate debt issuers, it's not going to produce systemic risk of the type that we saw with the mortgage-backed securities before 2008. And then I think the third bucket, if you like, that you'd really want to focus on is emerging market and low-income countries. And it's a very mixed bag there, I think, because um, there are many, I think, emerging market, especially the commodity exporters, which right now are probably in a better position than they were two or three years ago because commodity prices have surged. So even in the Gulf, you've got you know uh, struggling cases like Bahrain or Oman, which once upon a time would have been considered risks um, as sovereign debt issuers, who are now in a much better position than they were. On the other hand, if we're talking about um, commodity importers, that's, I think, where the real risk is. And um, for them, uh, the combination of rising food prices, rising commodity prices, and rising American interest rates, um, which are critical because they drive global interest rates, and many of these countries are effectively borrowing in dollars. Um, for those, for that cluster of countries, so emerging market and low-income commodity importers, um, the risk really is of a of a of a sovereign debt or a corporate debt crisis of uh, of a type we're familiar with. Is it a 1980s style developing country debt crisis? I don't think the indications are that we're heading towards that kind of a scale of disaster where all of Latin America suddenly becomes endangered and with it then the American banking system. That doesn't seem like a particularly likely contingency. But on the other hand, we're talking about a lot of people living in a lot of rather fragile states. So to my mind, that is another major area of concern. Are we in a place where we could see a repeat of 2008 financial crisis, though? No, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that is the view either of the of the macroprudential authorities whose task it has been in the last decade to survey those risks. Because we did learn something from 2008, which is that we need to understand the balance sheets of the private sector above all much better than we previously did. Like in Europe, there is this preconception that the debt crises after 2008 were sovereign debt. This is silly. That's a misunderstanding, right? The real risk is in the private sector and this private sector balance sheets, short-term funding of major maturity mismatches in the private sector, what you, know, you might call the shadow banking system in the extended sense, are where the systemic risk is. And um, at this point, there doesn't seem to be any reason to to fear um, that kind of an unraveling. I mean, at this point, I don't think we think that there are multi-trillion dollar balance sheets as there were in 2008, because forget Lehman, that wasn't really the hub of this, right? It was Citigroup that was really at the hub of it all. The really big American commercial banks, which had very dangerous levels of exposure, 
were what ultimately needed to be rescued. You could let Lehman go, but you really regretted having done it because of the damage that was then done to the stability of even bigger pieces of the financial system. At this point, I don't think that there is much risk of that happening. At least that seems to be the assessment of the central banks, because otherwise it would be hard to understand why they would be willing to take measures which are going to have the effect most likely next year in the United States of in fact tipping the real estate market from a considerable boom in recent years into a slump. And we think at this point, the betting is that American real estate prices will fall next year. And for some people, at least, that's going to generate negative equity. And I don't think the Fed will be embarking on that kind of a policy. Um, mortgage interest rates have doubled in the US in about six months um, if, it, if it saw serious systemic risk. Now, I may be too sanguine about this, but I may be too rationalist. But I think um, if, if one assumes a rational decision-making process, then we have to infer that they do not see those, those risks in the financial system. Okay. Uh, what are the consequences of these huge debts? There's been the increase in the wealth gaps and what seems to be a fracturing in politics with people seemingly divided down the middle. Which countries are most at risk at losing ground in the race to control the world, given their wealth and political division? Uh, the United States. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think that's a simple answer. I mean, there are, only, there, are, there are only two countries in a race for a position of global hegemony. And really, China isn't playing for the sort of global hegemony that America has aspired to and has at various points claimed, right? I mean, America's global hegemony at two points in history, after 1945 and then in the 1990s and the early 2000s, is quite unlike anything we've ever seen before in history. One shouldn't confuse it or conflate it with anything prior. Right? The British Empire never exerted leverage in the way that the United States did over literally the entire system. Um, so... It's unique, and China is emerging as a at least hemispheric, certainly mega-regional player of a type that we've not seen before. Right? China isn't like anything else. There's no point in comparing it to imperial Germany or something. And China is entirely sui generis. It's one-sixth of humanity. It's the most ancient and powerful civilization that our species has created. Like So it, its re-emergence as an economic powerhouse and potentially therefore a military challenger is, is novel, and I don't think there's any doubt that at the current moment, insofar as we make sense to talk about a hegemonic competition, America is in appallingly bad shape um, to, to, to really um, stick in this competition. Right? It has areas of very important strength because it's the hub of the dollar system. It has a huge preponderance of military power so far. Um, it has uh, a tech sector, which is second to none in the world. And it is a major fossil fuel producer and exporter. So those are America's strengths. But does it have the political system um, and that in turn founded on a society sufficiently coherent, united, or even just capable of organizing majorities for decisive action? And the answer is emphatically no. And that has been the case now for perhaps 20 years, but certainly manifestly since 2008, when the Bush administration struggled to pull together a coalition of its own party to support it in fighting the crisis in 2008. And it was Democrats who supported the Republicans in managing the crisis, only then to find the Obama presidency in essentially a cold war with the Republicans in Congress. And that is the world that we're headed back to as of the autumn of this year, because in the November midterms, barring an absolute miracle, the Democrats will suffer a disastrous defeat. And at this point, it's quite difficult to see a clear path for, well, a, a Democratic contender to win 
the presidency again in 24. And even if they do, it's very difficult to see how they would they would get a congressional majority for decisive action. And that's even before you begin to dig into the mountain, you know, the multiple dysfunctions of American society, the lack of an adequate welfare state uh, being the most being the most salient. Um, so. So no, there's no question at all. If um, America has huge domestic political social uh, problems that undermine its capacity to conduct this, um, what its political elite is determined to construct as a struggle with China. And that was one of the real puzzles of the Biden administration as it came in in 2021, clearly attempting to articulate a reformist American politics around the project of confronting, as Biden put it, climate and China, the two great 21st century challenges for the United States. And it's not been able to do either really effectively, other than to build military strength and to 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 use this opportunity in Ukraine to attrit Russia. That's the one, America's hegemonic strategy essentially is operating on one leg right now, and that is the military power dimension. You could add in the Fed as another tool but I mean, the the military power is increasingly the dominant uh, factor here, and that's not a good sign. It's impressive, of course, that they can mobilize all of that hardware so quickly, but it's hardly a good sign for a comprehensive American power project. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. Okay, I want to switch to commodities, which you were talking about earlier. And in recent years, we've seen China buy up a large amount of the world's supply of lithium and cobalt mines in Congo, both critical to the production of batteries in the electric world, while Russia's war on Ukraine has shone a light on the control and production of the likes of oil and agricultural commodities such as grain. So what influence will the battle for control of Earth's commodities have on our future well, I think it's only just beginning, really, um, because um, as far as the West is concerned, it's only really in the recent, very recent years that we have woken up to the significance of this. But it is, I think, a crucial area uh, going forward. I mean, insofar as we can expect Europe and China to embark now seriously on the energy transition, and I think the signs are that they are serious about this. Not sure about the rest of the world, but I think they are. And they see advantages in it. So this is not a moral project or an ethical project. They actually see a transformation in their energy systems as very much in their best interest. What that does create is a whole new set of dependencies um, because you, as, you know, as you break away from your oil and your gas supplies, you end up dependent on your supplies of copper and lithium and so on. And as you say, China has established a major lock grip on known sources. Co- with copper, um, you know, it's more complicated. And then the rare earth too, one shouldn't be too, I think, apocalyptic about this um, because they're only rare because they're so poisonous to, to refine that we have largely outsourced the refining of many of them to emerging market and low-income countries, which don't have uh, as rigorous uh, environmental and health and safety standards as in the West. Much of these, many of these minerals could be produced um, in the West if we wanted to. Uh, but we certainly are embarked here in a in a new era in which availability of key materials really matters. That said, as with oil and gas, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we would still buy Russian gas if they've delivered it to us until they stopped delivering it last week. Um, Europe was hungrily buying it. So even in a world of geopolitical competition, money talks. 
And um, I think it's I think it's uh, a little naive to assume that simply because the Chinese have established control over many of these materials, they'll be unavailable to everyone else in the world. They may just be available only at a price, a price determined by those who have established these contractual uh, control over them. Um, that I think is going to be the, the the new area of struggle. I mean, because as we see in both the Chinese and the Russian case, commodity trade, raw material trade goes on and even under incredibly different, difficult circumstances. Um, but it is then a question of what price you pay to get access. Okay, so speaking of money, China also now makes up about one-fifth of all lending to Africa, and it's concentrated in a few strategic or resource-rich areas. Mm. And Russia also holds nearly a third of all China's renminbi reserves. That's according to IMF data. So how much will one country having a stranglehold over another's finances have on the controlling of the world order? Well, uh, depends how much you want to remain in the world of conventional finance, I think. I mean, as we've seen with Russia, you know, there's sort of a world A in which they do things like Crimea and we sanction them marginally and they remain in other respects perfectly legitimate, indeed quite major and significant players within the global financial system. I mean, Putin's central banker, who's still his central banker now, was awarded not one but two prizes by Western publications for central banking for her highly successful handling of the fallout from our sanctions of her government after the Crimean occupation, right? So that's the kind of world that we were in until the 24th of February this year, one in which, yes, there were difficulties and tensions, but as it were, there was a sort of live and let live. There was a a willingness to do business. People were still lending money on a significant scale to Putin's and the government even after Crimea. There were there were geopolitical warnings in the prospectuses for the debt, but the the debt was still issued and still bought. And um, that's one world, right, uh, of tension, but tension which doesn't interrupt commercial activity. And then there's the world that we're in now, which is one where um, control of finances becomes very rapidly, you know, politicized, but then also just turns out in some sense to be irrelevant, right? Because you want the $500 billion in reserves if you're Russia, if you're in a world of free foreign exchange movement, and therefore you want the reserve to cushion your currency in the event of a devaluation. If you're in a war situation in which we confiscate or impound or sanction those reserves, you also can just impose exchange controls and capital controls. Um, and so, therefore, you don't really need the reserves because you've got the mechanisms for controlling the balance of payments to hand. Um, if in that world we add as a further weird wrinkle the people that you're fighting this war notionally, directly or indirectly against, who've impounded your 500 billion in foreign exchange reserves, are still willing to send you the best part of a billion dollars a day in exchange for oil and gas, well, then all the easier to manage your, all your reserves, right? So how much financial control matters, I think, depends very much on the circumstance. Paradoxically, financial control matters most in a world in which regular finance is still a thing. As soon as you shift to the world of actual war confrontation, finance plays a less and less significant role. I mean, to be concrete, if, Taiwan, if China were to make the world historic gamble of launching military aggression against Taiwan, I think the fate of its couple of trillion dollars in US Treasury holdings would be fairly low down the priority list of concerns in Beijing. You know, they're incommensurate. If you've embarked on the project of, of you know, world historic rectification, which is restoring Beijing's control over Taiwan, or risking the wrath of the United States, you know, the 
world's preeminent nuclear power. Yeah, two trillion one way or the other. That's just money you weren't spending anyway that was sitting on some account that you don't really care about. So you see what I'm saying, that financial control works in a world in which we are all to a degree still playing by some commonly agreed rules. As soon as we step outside that world, it's painful if you use those reserves, but it's also no longer decisive because you've made the decision to step outside that world. And so that's one of the decisions the West has to make. It's like, how aggressive do we want to be in using the stranglehold of the euro and the dollar as the currencies of safe assets worldwide? How aggressive do we want to be for fear if, if potentially of tipping the people on whom we are exercising pressure into an entirely different world in which those currency holdings just no longer matter one way or the other. And thereby we lose, of course, also our leverage. So does that mean the creation of all these digital currencies and the attempt to decentralize finance, does that not matter so much either? Well, I think we have to distinguish two things. The creation of central bank digital currencies is an extension of central banking uh, functions. Um, and it poses a threat mainly to commercial banks because if it was possible for citizens to have bank, uh, central bank accounts, why would they bother with commercial bank accounts? Um, and that's, I think, been the rate limiting factor so far. And central banks around the world, I think, are going to do experiments in digital currencies of that type. Those, however, are not decentralized. That's essentially centralized digital currency, right? It's ultra centralized potentially because you're not even decentralizing to private banks. You're holding a, the entire financial account of the entire society on the, on the books of the central bank. The decentralized thing, that's an entirely different story. And we're seeing right now the shipwreck of many of the promises of the, you know, the original crypto uh, variety of decentralized finance. Whether from that mess, various types of blockchain technology emerge that actually are promising for the purposes of decentralized um, you know, transactions. And so I think remains to be seen. One shouldn't rule out the possibility that that technology does in the end prove to have some, some worth, but it's um, the last couple of months have hardly been an advertisement for that particular branch of modern finance. No, it hasn't. I mean, what do you see the outlook for cryptocurrencies? Bitcoin, the main one, is essentially a Keynesian beauty contest type asset, right? It's a purely speculative asset in which you make bets on whether other people are going to make bets on other people making bets on other people making bets on this thing. And, you know, that's a game some people like to play and you could no doubt make money doing it, but we shouldn't confuse it with, you know, a more substantively and seriously economic game. The argument that it's ever going to be a major store of value or a, a, a means of payment or a unit of account, which are the three basic functions of money, at this point, I would have thought has been answered. It's not going to be a serious version of any of those three things. So what it might simply be is, is, a, is, a, is a speculative play in which people who are brave enough uh, and think they've got their ear close enough to the crypto circuit can make money by anticipating other people's choices. And there are, you know, there are other commodities like this, um, which have, or in fact, really kind of not right, I think, to call them commodities. So um, speculative assets um, uh, that, that might have this, this, this function. Um, I don't see it in that role occupying a very major space in the world of finance. I mean, it would be useful, you could argue, if it was in no way correlated with anything else. So then it would be a strategy for diversification. You could buy this, as you like, as almost like a random number generator. Um, but of course, it turns out to be quite highly correlated with a bunch of other risks. So you don't even, you know, you might as well have just bought QQQ, really, which would have tracked, which would have tracked the movement of Bitcoin quite closely over recent months. So it doesn't have that role. Stable coins, I think, have been exposed as the dangerous, primitive kind of shadow banking mechanisms that they are. Um, and then there's obviously a bunch of Ponzi schemes, which was unraveled quite fast.
Um, so that's the space. I don't expect it to die because, you know, quite a lot of people who are noisy and, and um, energetic are still invested in it. Um, and so that kind of activity will go on. But it's, um, it doesn't seem to me, the idea that it's, going, it's the future of finance or anything like that, I would have thought at this point is, is looking pretty threadbare. Okay, so the final two questions, given all we're talking about, who do you think is winning the race to control the world order? That's the first one. I'm not sure that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think America believes it is the organizing hegemon of a world order and um, is um, struggling um, to uphold that position. At least one part of the American political system believes that that's what its role, its legitimate role is, the, the Democratic Party, basically, the, at least the center ground of the Democratic Party. And um, there were flickers of, of that real aspiration and ambition there in the early stages of the Biden administration. But right now, I think they're just sucked into a domestic crisis, which is going to spiral from here on in. Um, China, I don't think, really is in the business of world ordering. I think China's in the business of asserting itself against the American incumbent and exercising dominance um, in its immediate region. And um, I think it's continuing to push. But China has now got a huge amount on its plate with you know, the domestic real estate issues and the domestic COVID problem. China desperately needs a global order for public health, and it just doesn't exist. And China has not been a terribly active contributor to it. I think there's a bunch of other entities, notably the EU, that have a real interest in world order. Um, the EU would really love to live in a world which looked like an even bigger version of itself, right? That was, you know, a sort of messy... Um, a law-bound, vaguely confederal kind of global system. But I mean, no one's going to give, deliver that for the EU, and the EU is not in a position to deliver it. So this idea of, as it were, the current moment being a grand drama, a grand struggle between powers engaged in a project of world ordering, I think is, is uh, not terribly helpful as a description of the current world. I think we have a, an ailing incumbent and challengers whose project is not so much world order as simply the escape from and the demolition of American hegemony. And the final question, I mean, how do you see that all affecting the global economy and markets? I think we're in a world of very considerable uncertainty um, as far as the world economy is concerned. Um, I think we're back in the you know 2019 world in a sense where the IMF and the World Bank and others were doing you know anxious studies about the impact of uncertainty on investment. This is not... Um, uh, an environment in which without political guarantees of various types, which have to be negotiated, it's easy to foresee where the good places to invest are. So I think there are real headwinds here for um, private economic activity generally um, of a new type, um, which uh, which businesses are really going to have to figure out new ways of negotiating. And, and, and what they would look for, you would expect, is clear guidance from the political side um, and in certain spaces, you know, if you're in the energy space, I think you should take seriously the fact that Europe is in the business of decarbonizing. That's going to happen. So that's something that you can act on in a, in a credible way, I think. Um, but beyond local pockets of certainty like that, and as a share of the world economy, obviously the EU share is dramatically dwindling. And there still will be, therefore, large spaces open to fossil fuel development in the zone, for instance, of supplying gas to Asia that market's not going in a way any away anytime soon. So I think 
it's really a question of picking. There is no longer a single order you can refer to longer. There is no general guarantee of, as it were, immunity from political pressure. It's very much a question of finding spaces in which the direction of travel is clear enough for people to be able to make you know, the sort of long-term commitments that are necessary um, for, for really invest, big investment projects to flourish. Here's what else investors are talking about. Russia's invasion of Ukraine prompted a sharp jump in the price of some food commodities and the impact looks set to be long-standing. In six charts, fund manager Felix Odi shows why high food prices aren't going away. You can find out more by visiting schroders.com forward slash insights. Also, the United Nations Climate Conference COP27 is set to take place in Egypt this November. Lisa Seisland in Schroeder's global content team has summarised what COP27 is and why it matters in this Q&A. You can bookmark the page COP27 blog What Next for Climate Change at schroders.com and see live updates as and when events happen. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. Investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.